You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive today. It's great having you here today. And uh, this is the week. Every year we celebrate the week that changed the world, the week that makes the whole difference, the week that makes Christianity something worth to even consider. It's not uh, simply um, we're going to kind of celebrate a couple of holidays. This is the turning point of all history, of all time. It's kind of like a runaway train was going in one direction, down a path that was towards destruction, this whole world and everything that had happened. And then this is the time that God's son lays down his life, switches the tracks to give us a whole new future. It's just amazing what happens. And today it starts with Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So welcome to to Thrive today as we are going to be talking about breaking the broken mold, the broken mold of leadership, the broken mold of power, the broken mold of religion itself with how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem that Sunday, Um, but also this week is, of course, Holy Week. It's been called, that is the week of Jesus' uh, life. And I don't know if you realize this, the Gospels, the four Gospels we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all spend one-third of all that is written is just on this one week. So it's, some people have said it's basically a passion story with a prologue <laughs> in some ways because 30-some years of Jesus' life, we're not quite exactly sure how many he lived, but 30, 33 years, one week gets a third of it. That tells you how important this week is, okay? So this Friday, only online um, this year, but we will have an online streaming service for Good Friday, a meditation on Isaiah 53 and 54, the prophecies about the servant of the Lord who is wounded for our transgressions. That will occur online. We'd love for you to watch it. It starts at 6.30, and then anytime after that, 6.30 in the evening. It's called Amazing Grace, okay? So we'd love to have you for that. And then, of course, Easter, right? So bring your friends, bring, and we've got invitations for that. Um, on your seats. If you need more than one or two, we've got plenty. But today, uh, we are going to celebrate breaking the broken mold, what Jesus does here. And we're looking at Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Where, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Je- what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So today from this text, we're seeing how Jesus breaks the broken mold. And specifically, we're going to see how he broke the broken mold of leadership, of power, and of religion. And it all occurs in this text. So first of all, the mold of leadership. You heard what they said of him, right? When he came into Jerusalem, they said, Hail, Hosanna, King you know, and in the line of David. So he was called a king. He was hailed by them. He, they saw him as a leader. But Jesus does something so jarring and so shocking in this story. He decides that he's going to ride in. He picks out the exact animal to ride in on, which is in the Greek, it says polos, which is a small, tiny horse, maybe like a Shetland pony looking thing. Or here, probably a donkey's colt. Now, who rides a donkey, right? Remember in literature, Sancho Panchas, you know, in uh, Don Quixote. He rides a donkey. He's kind of a koofy character, right? Um, it would be more or less like the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, deciding she's going to come into town on a moped. <laughs> Isn't that great? It works. Can you imagine the Queen of England on a moped? Okay, yeah, I'd love to see. Somebody should create a meme of that. Um, anyways, no. It's not a terrible idea. Okay, well, anyways, what Jesus is doing here, like that, he's juxtaposing his majesty, his leadership, with his humility, his meekness. His weakness and his strength are being seen here, and he is recalling and bringing to fulfillment a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And the prophets don't just say whatever they feel like and hope for. They are prophesying what God intended from the beginning about leadership, about kingship, about the way it should be. And so in Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. That's fascinating, this juxtaposition. The word humble in Zechariah here is this Hebrew word, ana, which means not just humble and kind of, but also needy, poor, even afflicted. And you look at Jesus' life and you find that's what he's like. He's never in a position of power. He never had wealth. He never had all the resources. that He, he was always dependent, always contingent, always looking to his Father for all good things. And he says, that's the position I want to be in. He could have any position he wanted in the world, any type of leadership he could have defined. He chooses this way to define leadership. The Greek word 
that is translated into the New Testament when Zechariah is used is this Greek word praus, which also means meek or gentle. And this is not a one-off. This is not Jesus just doing this for the moment. Okay, check. I've got to fulfill this prophecy that Zechariah had. Check. This is the way I'm going to act today. This is who he is. This is who he is at his heart. You see, when Jesus opens up his heart to us, when he shows us who he is, not just what he does, not what he says, but who he is, there's a passage, I think, in the New Testament Uh, In the Gospel of Matthew, words right out of his mouth telling it, this is who I am, from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here's that word, prouse again, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is life. This is how he defines his character. This is who he says he really is. This is what he's all about. He's gentle. He is humble. He is the one who is open and lowly, the easiest, most approachable, most willing to listen, most wanting to have a conversation with you. And no matter what condition you're in, no matter what your background is, this is the one that you can come to and not worry. How's he going to see me? What's he going to say? How's it going to go? Isn't that fascinating? That's how he defines leadership. You know, most leaders you think of are like, oof, you know. I, I recall that in, I know, kind of the controversial interview with uh, Harry and... Um, Why am I forgetting her name? Megan, what? Yes, with Oprah. She had to learn to curtsy real quick because even behind closed doors, when you meet the queen, you bow or curtsy. You have to have protocol. Behind the scenes, in front, Jesus is not like that at all. There's no like, oh my goodness, I better watch out how I'm approaching him. He's the one who approaches you. Palm Sunday is not a fluke. It's not kind of a sideshow to who Jesus is. This is how he defines his leadership. Dane Ortland writes, The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all the resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Isn't that It's like, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are like that. And not just that Jesus is this way. This is what's fascinating. When you understand, um, kind of in retrospect, the whole, when you have encountered Jesus Christ, you realize what he is like, and then you realize who he is, that he is not simply a human being or the Messiah, but that he is actually the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. Then you start saying, oh, this is what God is like. Jesus represents exactly who your God is. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Look to Jesus. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it this way at the beginning of that letter. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
That's like you look into Jesus' face and you see the face of God. It's the mirror image, the exact representation, not a one-off. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God himself has this demeanor toward you. God may be the highest of high. He might be transcendent. He might be omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all these omnis that we talk about, all these other attributes. But when you get down to who God is at his heart, we're going to see it more clearly this week than anywhere else. And we see it both here on Palm Sunday, and we see it on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and we see it so clearly at the crucifixion where God is broken over the brokenness of this world. This is who God is at his heart what God wants to do for you and for me. So he might be transcendent and creative and powerful and wise and mighty, but he is not inapproachable. He is not like, oh my goodness, I can't get close to that. But he's also at the same time imminent, present, right here. It's fascinating. So um, the lion and the lamb, we sang that. Uh, just before, and it's uh, been a popular song, but I think there's such a profound message in it as well, because from the book of Revelation, what we see is that um, John is all upset. He's not quite sure who it's going to be that's going to be unseal the scroll and make kind of God's plan and future happen, and in his visions that he sees, he sees, he hears the word that says, wait a minute, the lion from the tribe of Judah has come who is worthy to do it, and then he looks, and you know what he sees? He does not see a lion. He sees a lamb who was slain, a weak, a sacrificial lamb who is on the throne. Isn't that fascinating? That's who God is at heart. And this, this breaks the broken mold of leadership. Okay? Leaders even today, even after Jesus shows what leadership is, leaders today think you still have to be strong, mighty, invulnerable, a winner all the time, never wrong, don't admit any mistakes or faults, don't let anybody show, see your weaknesses, right? You gotta be successful, you gotta be on top, you've gotta be all the, Jesus seems to break all of those things. He doesn't have a bodyguard to keep him safe. He doesn't have an entourage to keep away the riffraff, <laughs> you know? He might be almighty and all-powerful and can do miraculous things, but he is absolutely the most approachable individual who has ever lived this earth. I am a lot less approachable than he because I am filled with my own pride. He has none of that. He is open to you, accessible to you. That's what Jesus says. Leadership, it's not about the power. It's not about being king in some glory, even like David. It's not about using your power for your own position to protect yourself, to get what you want, and maybe give a few things to the constituency. And no wonder that week when Jesus enters, that the scribes and the Pharisees and others say, will you tell your people to stop, uh, shut up and stop talking about who you are? We can't stand them praising you as the king. No wonder he confounds the scribes, he exasperates the whole priesthood, he angers the Sanhedrin and the, the leaders, and he puzzles Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is trying to figure out who in the world this person is. And he threatens everything that Pilate and every one of these leaders stands for. He unravels all their falsehoods. 
right by just being there, being the king. He unmasks all their myths of, of their divine rights to be in leadership. <laughs> it's like hogwash. You're, not, you're weak. You're self-centered. You're egotistical. You aren't showing any of the qualities of what leadership is. Jesus breaks that broken mold. He also breaks the broken mold of power itself, which kind of goes with leadership. But we see that, I think, more profoundly, not in how he entered into Jerusalem, but what he did at the temple. The cleansing of the temple, we call it. He enters into the court of this Gentiles, into the temple, and he saw a circus. And I mean huge, like not just three rings, like a million. It's like the craziest place on earth, what was going on there. And you might think, oh, well, you know, that's the way it all, it was not always that way. So the temple itself um, had this area, this outward courtward, uh, court area called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the biggest uh, area around the temple, gated on all sides. Everyone, all nations could enter that. Then inside of that, sad to say, this is, by the way, not, not, not commanded by God in the Old Testament to set things up this way. But inside of that, then, is this court of women. So the Jewish women could enter that. And then inside of that is the court of men only Jewish men could. And then the temple itself and only the priesthood could enter there. And then the Holy of Holies inside of that, the, only the high priest once a year could enter. Get that? Kind of a nice little hierarchy, kind of a caste system already established by religion and by power. And when Jesus entered in the court of the Gentiles, what did he see? He saw chaos. He saw the buying and selling of animals for sacrifice and money changing going on. Huge amount of mess. And this was actually a new innovation in the time of Jesus. This wasn't something that was occurring for hundreds of years. In fact, it's Josephus, this um, historian. Um, Lee Rittmeyer, an archaeologist and an architect himself, reports this. He says, ancient historian Josephus tells, calls Annas the high priest, one of the priests at the time of Jesus, a great hoarder up of money. <laughs> you see already this connection between religion and money that runs all the way back to the temple itself. The sons of Annas had bazaars set up in the court of the Gentiles for the purpose of money changing and the purchase of sacrificial animals. It was com a combination of their greed, the fact that they brought in the foreign coins, and that they carried out these activities in a sacred area that aroused the zeal of Jesus. This was a new innovation. They basically said, hey, if we tell everybody we've got, you've got to come into the temple courts and buy the lambs here, you can't bring them in yourself. And if we then say, hey, you've got to, can't use your Roman coins for do this, but you've got to, and then we set the exchange rate to the temple shekel. We make money off of the exchange. We make money off the animals that are inflated. And then we, do you understand what was going on here? This is how the priesthood was making buku bucks off of the people, using their power for themselves. No wonder Jesus comes in and looks at this whole mess that just started happening for maybe two decades before his time and starts throwing over the money changers table because this area was supposed to be a house for the nations where people from all over the world could come in and celebrate this God who was not just there for the Jewish people, but for all people. And yet the one area that they could enter, the one area where they could be... <laughs> 
was, it dis- was chaotic and confusing. In fact, Josephus mentions just on one Passover, one Passover week, which is the week that Jesus comes in, 255,000 lambs were sold, bought, sold, and slaughtered there in one week. 200, can you imagine how chaotic that scene must have been with all that going on? This place was impossible for anyone to even pray or understand what the temple was all about. No wonder Jesus turned it all over, and then he writes, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den? Basically a quote from Jeremiah himself, who got into trouble for saying that. (laughs) Now the more shocking background of all this is the fact that the Jewish nation was hoping for the Messiah to come and to actually purify the temple, to purify it all. But they expected when the Messiah would come, he would purify the temple from all foreign influences and all foreigners and allow it just be for the Jewish people. And here Jesus flips the script and says, it's not about you, it's about all people. I use my power, my position, for the sake of all nations and all people of all backgrounds. That's what power is for. And they were also shocked because the Jewish people would know the history of the temple. Though the temple had been established by Solomon around 900 BC, the tabernacle predating it to about 1250, 1400 BC at the time of Moses, the temple actually begins way back already in Genesis chapter 2. Because The whole purpose of the temple was what the Garden of Eden was about. It was a little piece of Eden in the midst of a broken world now. See, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to have the full presence of God and all his glory to commune with them. And where God was present, he created the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 as an oasis in the midst of a very dry and desert-like area. And you can read about that in Genesis 2, how that was created. And then... When Adam and Eve, and wherever God was present, wherever God was present, there was no death or disease or decay. There was just goodness and grace and shalom, peace, harmony, perfect unity. But Adam and Eve, well, they just, when humanity basically said, no, we don't want to center our lives on you, we're going to center our lives on ourselves. It all started to break down, and then God banishes them, drives them out, as Genesis 3.24 says, east of the Garden of Eden, and he places in front of the gate a, flaming, uh, a cherubim with a flaming sword that moves in every direction, which basically means the only way in, back to the presence of God, is under the sword. So who's going to get there? We're stuck. Who's ever going to be able to be in the presence of God? How is God going to ever be with his people? And that's why when God covenants with Moses at Sinai and the people, he establishes a place, a temporary place, a a, a, uh, 
a, a certain provisional way of how God can be with his people again. And he sets up the tabernacle, which has a holy area only for priests, but the holy of holies, this perfect cubed space within the tabernacle, and then later translated to the temple itself. And once a year, for one person, the high priest, could the priest enter that holy of holies, but something had to even then go under the sword. And at the time, it would be a lamb that was spotless. And the blood poured out. And then the priest, only as a result of having the blood with him and on him, could he go in and sprinkle that blood on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Holy of Holies. And that's how God was present with his people. Yeah, and you're right. (laughs) They tied a rope to his leg because nobody, if he dropped dead in there for whatever reason, they'd have to pull him out because nobody else could go in there without uh, threatening his life. Isn't that amazing? That's how it was. Now, what's fascinating is that's not what God intended for his presence among his people. And in fact, his prophets, the prophet Isaiah says, there will be a day when the glory of God covers the whole earth as The waters cover the sea so that it's permeating everything and all creation. Well, how can that be unless something goes under the sword? If someone goes, how do we get there again? How can we get back to that? And Isaiah is the one who also says, well, the way back comes through this servant. This uh, Friday, when we go to Good Friday, we're going to be looking specifically at Isaiah 53 and 54, these passages from the prophet Isaiah that talks about this servant of the Lord who is cut off from the land of the living, who basically goes under the sword for the sake of all the people. So when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's not just saying this is the wrong way to use this space. He's overthrowing the whole temple and replacing it with himself. He's overthrowing the whole sacrificial system and saying, there are no more sacrifices for sins. I will be the sacrifice. He is the one who is bringing God's presence back to his people by himself, undergoing the sword on the cross through his death and his agony to open up. Do you realize the day that Jesus dies, actually at the moment that he dies, the gospel writers proclaim that when he died and cried out that the earth shook and then the temple of the, uh, the curtain in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the rest was ripped by God because it was ripped from top to bottom. God rending his heart over the morning of his death, but also opening up the way again to God's glory for his people. That's how to use power. Power for forgiveness, power to sacrifice, power to replace, power to heal, power to bring reconciliation, power to bring people, again, back into the presence of God. The only what you, legitimate, real legitimate use of power is to bring people closer to God and to one another. <laughs> no wonder everybody was upset with Jesus because that's not the way they were using power. And finally, he breaks the broken mold of religion. Now, this comes up in that wonderful little story, weird story, about the cursing of a fig tree, okay? Now, this is fascinating. In the Gospel of Mark, we have Jesus entering the temple then, 
for one time, it's late in the day, so he leaves, goes back to Bethany, and then he comes in and cleanses the temple afterwards. And in between is the story of the cursing of the fig tree, which is fascinating because what, what I, it, there's a fancy term for this. It's called, it's an intercalation. Can you say intercalation? Intercalation. It's a story within a story that teaches you what's going on in the greater story. Okay? Because at first glance, you look at this, Jesus must have been really, like, vindictive. I mean, what, what does he have out for a plant world? I mean, here he comes. He sees this fig tree. It's in, in leaf, the text says, but there were, it wasn't the season for figs, and yet he's upset there's nothing on it, and he curses it, and it dies. <laughs> right? What? It's not about the fig tree. And by the way, fig trees, the, this kind of a fig tree actually produced two types of fruit. At the time that the leaves come out, there are supposed to be all these little nubs all along the branches that are really tasty to eat, little morsels. And it showed that the figs were going to be coming in the future. But when Jesus comes up to this plant and can't find any of those nubs, nothing on it except leaves, he knows, you know what? The tree is diseased. It's as good as dead. There's nothing to it. It's not going to ever produce fruit. That's religion for you. That's religion. Looks good. And he goes into the temple and he sees, looks good. Lots of stuff happening. A lot of busyness. Nothing going on. Absolutely no relationship to God going on in that temple anymore. It's a disaster. It's a circus. It's a waste of time. It's a money-making machine and nothing else. And so often that's what religion is. It's a, you do these things, you go through these motions, you get God to you. It's kind of like a Skinner box on a human scale, a cosmic scale. Let's try to pull these levers, press this, do this. God gets, and Jesus says, that's dead. That's dead. So the question becomes then, what does he replace this deadness of religion with? How does it even happen? I think this comes out as well, because Jesus uses this metaphor for your life and mine. In um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, it says this, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Only through what God does to replace the diseased tree in my life, religion, morality, my ethics, my human life. Only then, when he plants a new tree, do I actually change. Only then. So what he did to the fig tree, he's got to do to each one of us. He's got to look at us. We realize that there's nothing really there. There's no fruit. The fruit that I bear by my religion, by the way, it's either a form of self-righteousness and judgmentalism towards others because I'm so much better than you and pity you, you know, bless your soul. Or it's a matter of bitterness and despair and where I'm going, I can't believe I've had it so hard and you've had it. No good fruit comes from religion, by the way. It might look good, but it isn't. 
The only way good can come from your life and mine is that we have a whole new life given to us, a whole new tree, that he grafts his life into mine, that Jesus Christ, you realize when he dies on a cross, he died on a cursed tree, a dead tree. He hung on the dead tree and he dies there and unites us with his death and resurrection through our baptism so that we now are alive in Christ. We're grafted into him. This is how Dane Ortland uh, speaks of this. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. I love that statement. You know, I cannot force you to do things and get you to do them for the right reasons. You understand what I mean? Any of that stuff, that's what religion does. But Christ says, receive me. Receive everything I have. Let my life flow through you. And then you start doing things that actually do produce fruit that startles the world. It's like, why in the world do you do that? Why did you do that? How can you be so good? I have a friend, uh, Laura, who's been with me this week. She's watching online right now. Um, She came from uh, Michigan, and she was diagnosed uh, this last fall with uh, a form of cancer that is terminal. She's got some time, but not a lot. Um, The treatments at the University of Michigan are only extending her life. That's all they expect. One of her doctors, who I don't think is probably a Christian, just was astounded by her attitude and the fruit of her life, just her goodness. And she said, i got to go to lunch with you. I got to find out what's going on in your life. So they went to lunch and and, uh, Laura was able to tell the whole story of her life and the story of Jesus and the difference he's made. And why am I not? I'm thankful I've had 61 years of, of God's grace in my life and I'm ready. The doctor handed her a little note and said, here, I want you to have this. She left. It was a check for $1,000 made out in her name just to say love. I'm just, no doctor does this, by the way, usually. I've never had a doctor even ask me to lunch and pay for it. (laughs) And here, this doctor saw the fruit in her life, not as a result of Laura, but a result of her Savior, Jesus, who has been living through her for 61 years and who will be glorified in the the months that she has and in the whole, in, in the summary of her life. And she's going to be in his glory forever. So that's what Jesus does. He replaces religion, and no wonder. So Jesus breaks the broken mold of leadership, of power, and of religion, and he's broken by the leaders of his day. He is crucified by the powers that be. He is sacrificed by the religion of his time to break that mold for you. And he is the most accessible to you right now. He has not changed. He is no different today. Though he is reigning on the throne of the universe, he is the human being who did this all and who still at his heart is gentle and humble for you. And the only qualification to receive him is to know you need him. To know you need him. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we celebrate this day uh, that you broke 
this broken mold of how leaders are in this world, how power is used, how religion works, and instead you've replaced it with yourself and a living relationship with you, that your death and resurrection has been ours now, given to us. We, we need you. We need you to want us, and you do. And, and you take us wherever we're at, Lord. I mean, you know how broken and messed up our lives are. You know how defiant we've been. You know, like, we have centered our lives on everything but you. Forgive us, Lord. Renew us and lead us. Lord, we, we are not those who could say that we are without sin. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> we would just be deceiving ourselves, not you. The truth would not be in us. But we know if we just confess our sins, you who are faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to do that more than anything. To be our reconciler, our savior, our Lord. We pray this week that we would be renewed in that relationship, that today, right now, that, that you are so accessible that we would come to you, that we would receive all that you have for us in just a few moments in the Lord's Supper, that we would not hold back any part of our lives from you because you need to have it all. Even the ugly areas of our lives, Lord, you can make beautiful. We thank you for that. Lord God, we do lift up people in our uh, congregation and in our community and our areas of concern and our extended family. We, we lift up to you, Lord, uh, those who are facing illness and difficulties and struggles right now. Anybody who's facing the financial issues that have been around for this year, Lord, we just pray that you would show that you are your, their provider and you are there for them in their midst. We pray, Lord, for Evelyn, who is still recovering at home, and we pray, Lord, the pain is diminished, her healing continues, she's able to walk fully again, and that we can come alongside her and her family through this time and just show your love and mercy to her. We lift up to you, Rachel and Kai, out in California, Lord. We just pray, Lord, your healing upon both, as mother and son both have cancer. But we know, Lord, you are the God of life and love and the God who will provide all that they need and who will never leave them or forsake them. So bring your healing there as you see fit, Lord God. We lift up to you, Chris, the grandson of the Griskies, and pray for your healing there as he faces a brain tumor as well. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, be with Chris Rodriguez. Thank you that she is home, Lord. We pray that she recovers more fully and quickly and can gather here with all your people to celebrate your resurrection. Lord God, you know what's on our hearts and minds. You know what we would love to see this week in the lives of so many people in our community, our neighbors who are still not sure about who you are, who think they have to get their act together first before they can come and approach you. But we don't need to do anything, Lord. We just need to need you. And we thank you that you are so, so gentle and humble in heart and you enter into our lives right now. So we praise you, we bless you, we thank you for all that you've done through, your, uh, through this week and that we can live with you by our side every day. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. <laughs>